Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Fellenzer. Welcome to the Front Row Podcast. It's great to be back. I hope you're doing well, staying safe. It's a difficult time, but I think we can get through this time um, by staying together and respecting each other. Along the way, I want to provide you with good content in the form of the podcasts and conversations that, uh, that I've had with some of the most interesting people that I've been fortunate enough to meet in sports. And I felt so lucky um, to be able to establish a friendship with the subject of, um, of this podcast, the late, great sports broadcaster, Hall of Famer, Dick Enberg. Um, we met uh, about 2007 at the Pac-12 Men's Basketball Tournament Staples Center, and uh, it was a friendship that really lasted for about the last 10 years of, of Dick's life. I was lucky to have him as a guest in my sports business media class at USC in the fall uh, of 2017. Uh, when I said goodbye to him the next morning, he spent the night at, the, at a hotel across the street from campus, uh, dropped him off at the train station, and that was the last time I saw him. And um, he died of a heart attack six weeks later um, in his home. So uh, I really treasured the evening that um, that we spent in the classroom um, and including a, a post-class dinner with a group of people at the pantry in downtown L.A. Uh, it was just such a special night. I think our friendship was solidified by um, the mutual admiration and, and friendship that we also shared with John Wooden. And the last time I saw uh, Coach Wooden, a few months before he passed away in 2010, was with Dick Enberg at Coach's Home, a place I called the Mecca on Margate, on Margate Avenue in Encino, and had a wonderful afternoon with with Dick, with Coach, with um, Coach Wooden's son, Jim, who was there. Um, and, of course, Dick Enberg got his big break as the UCLA basketball television announcer for the famous really became, as, as you will hear Dick describe, almost a cult-like thing. People that stayed up to watch the UCLA home games from Pauley Pavilion, starting with, with the time that Lou Alcindor, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was the star attraction and All-America Center, uh, all-time greatest score in basketball history, it would turn out to be, was leading the Bruins through an unbelievable stretch uh, under John Wooden. And from there... Uh, that that launched Dick into a sports casting career that is among the most decorated in the history of the medium. Um, I don't know if there was a more versatile sports broadcaster ever than Dick Enberg. Um, from UCLA basketball, he became the Angels play-by-play announcer. Uh, he did Rams football shortly after that. Um, the networks took notice. Um, uh, you know, he became uh, an NFL uh, announcer, play-by-play announcer. He did uh, college basketball, famously on NBC with Al McGuire and Billy Packer. Um, uh, Twenty-eight Wimbledon championships. He also did the U.S. Open, Australian Open, French Open, um, the Breeders' Cup, Notre Dame football, uh, boxing. Um, but in all, he did ten Super Bowls. Nine Rose Bowls, 
28 Wimbledon tournaments, four Olympic games, and get this, he called nine no-hitters during his baseball announcing career. Um, And his career was really bookended by his start with the Angels and his finish as the TV play-by-play voice of the San Diego Padres near his home in La Jolla. Um, And he finished his work with the Padres in 2016. Um, I was lucky enough to to go to a Padres game with Dick one night uh, during the the year um, after he had retired from the booth and to watch him interact with people at the ballpark, um, in the press dining room, the ushers, people that ran the elevator, wherever it was, you could just see the uh, the kindness that Dick always showed and respect to people and that they showed back to him. He was um, a lovely person, uh, elegant. Um, he had he was a man of, of refined taste. He had an amazing wine cellar in his home, uh, uh, a French-styled house that his wife Barbara had helped um, uh, pick out and, and design. Um, he was a voracious reader, writer, uh, author, traveler, a playwright. Um, he wrote a book about his, uh, I mean, a play about his relationship with, uh, with Al McGuire. I saw it, I saw it twice and it was absolutely terrific. He said it was, um, uh, maybe the most satisfying project he'd ever, um, attempted in his, in his career. And he really pulled it off, um, he was also in nine different movies, including Rollerball, Two Minute Warning, Heaven Can Wait. Um, he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He won 13 sports Emmys. Uh, also hosted the very popular at that time game show called Sports Challenge between 1971 and 1979. Uh, he has a Lifetime Achievement Emmy. Uh, he's the only sportscaster, in fact, to win an Emmy in three categories, Broadcasting, Writing, Producing. Uh, multiple uh, National Sportscaster of the Year awards. As I said, you you think about most versatile sports broadcasters ever. Well, I mean, you think Dick Enberg um, right there at the at the top of the line. Um, he was also a, uh, a professor at uh, Cal State Northridge, who really launched his career in Southern California. Received his doctorate degree, so it's actually Doctor Dick Enberg. Um, what I want you to, to to listen to, what we've done with this podcast, uh, many thanks to my great producer and former student, Rohan uh, Hardas, who uh, took the the uh, recorded, uh, the video recorded version of, uh, of the class from uh, November 2017 and repackaged it into a podcast. Uh, I felt like it was such a special evening. Um, I think you're going to hear some great stories about Dick's career, his journey, relationship with his his father, um, his thoughts about broadcasting so many um, sports and and you know memorable games uh, highlights. Uh, but there's a lot of life lessons in here too, and uh, in particular, I wanted to alert you. It happens near the end of the podcast, um, and of course. In the classroom, uh, he was um, uh, standing up and sort of discussing, standing next to the screen and discussing the different um, things that he that he um, 
that he uh, put up there. He had prepared, and it was um, it was five five thoughts for students and uh, just reflections on things that really mattered to him greatly and that were helpful for him in his life. And the five things were write, listen, prepare, laugh, and be kind. And he will explain each one of those, um, and it's really worth um, um, thinking about them. Um, And Dick was great about explaining how important each one of those things were. He also talks about the power of the pause um, and just sort of letting letting things breathe sometimes um, on a broadcast or in a conversation. So uh, I want to mention that too. Um, again, that happens towards the end. You're, you're going to hear a couple of people that are singled out during the course of the evening. We surprised Dick and included, um, you know, in the, in the class among our guests that night, uh, Stan Charnofsky, who's a, a Cal State Northridge psychology professor for almost 60 years, and he was the head baseball coach at Northridge when young Dick Enberg was an assistant baseball coach, along with being a professor. And Stan Charnofsky still going strong. He was a USC baseball player back in the day, signed with the New York Yankees organization, along with his twin brother, Hal. And uh, so it was, an, it was a pleasure, an honor to have Stan um, in the audience that night. And it was a surprise to Dick. Um, also Don Buford, another former great USC baseball player and good friend who... Uh, whose games uh, Dick called just over the years when Don was a star for the Baltimore Orioles and played for the Chicago White Sox. Um, and so Don was Don was there as well. You're, you'll hear Dick acknowledge Don. So um, those are some of the things I, I, I want you to um, be thinking about in advance as they come up during the course of, of the podcast. Um, it was a... It was a true honor to have Dick in the classroom and to have him as someone I considered a good friend, someone I learned from. He was so excited about the podcast he had recently started, and um, uh, that podcast has continued. Dick Dick was off to a great start. It's called the sounds the sound of success, the Dick Enberg, Enberg podcast, which you can still access. Um, Dick did um, interviews with Steve Kerr, Bill Walton, and Johnny Bench, and he he was just starting that. Um, it was going great, and it's it's been continued uh, now by Dick's um, sportscaster son, Ted Enberg. So um, you can uh, you can tune in and listen to those conversations that that Dick had and that Ted has had um, as well. So. Um, uh, we, we wanted to do this at this time because with baseball season starting, uh, that was really Dick's first love growing up in Detroit near Tiger Stadium. Uh, it was baseball first. And so with the baseball season, such as we are having it this year, uh, I thought what better time to celebrate the start of the season and the life and the great career uh, of Dick Enberg than um, with this podcast and remembering him from his time in my class, November 2017. Uh, enjoy. One of the greatest things, maybe the greatest thing about growing up as a sports fan in Southern California in the 1970s was listening to a lineup of future Hall of Fame play-by-play broadcasters. You talk about an embarrassment of riches. 
How about this for the golden era of announcers? Vin Scully with the Dodgers, Chick Hearn with the Lakers, Bob Miller with the Kings, and the most versatile of them all is our guest tonight, Dick Enberg, with the Angels, Rams, and during eight national championship seasons with John Wooden's UCLA Bruin basketball teams. These men brought the stories to their audiences directly through the radio. Yes, it was mostly by radio in those days, and they crafted the word pictures that made you feel a true and instant connection to the games, the teams, and the players. It was like a nightly feast for the senses, the very best stories. They talked to you like good friends, which is exactly what they became. And sure enough, when I had a chance to meet Dick Enberg in person for the first time about 10 years ago at the Staples Center during the Pac-12 basketball tournament, I felt like I'd known him for years. And I guess I had. Dick launched his professional broadcasting career right here in Los Angeles after receiving his master's and doctorate degrees in health sciences from Indiana University, where he matriculated after graduating from Central Michigan. He became a professor and assistant baseball coach at Cal State Northridge, which when it was known as San Fernando Valley State College. He got a break doing local sports news for KTLA Channel 5 before connecting with the Angels, the Rams, and UCLA basketball. After that, he was off to the races on a national stage that has included, now get this, 10 Super Bowls, 9 Rose Bowls, 28 Wimbledon Tennis Championships, 4 Olympic Games, golf, boxing, and horse racing. Are you kidding me? No, I'm really not. Um, and how absolutely fitting was it that Dick returned to his roots to describe baseball on the local level as voice of the San Diego Padres near his home in La Jolla for seven years until he retired after the 2016 season at 81 years young. Someone wrote that baseball covets five tool players. In Dick Enberg's case, that's a few tools short. Dick is far more than a sports broadcaster, though. He's also a writer and an author. He's just written a book about one of his boyhood idols, Ted Williams, who grew up in San Diego. He's also a playwright who wrote a wonderful story that has been performed and very well received. I've seen it twice about his late great college basketball broadcasting partner and former Marquette head coach, Hal McGuire. And he recently started his own podcast, which, by the way, the first one of the first ones was an interview with Steve Kerr that I was told was, was uh, fabulous. This man has truly done it all. Oh, my. One thing Dick and I will always share, the last time we each saw John Wooden alive, we were together in Coach Wooden's home having a memorable conversation a few months before he passed away at age 99. Dick said this about Coach during the memorial service a few months later. He was a man of greatness and goodness. And that's exactly what I think of our guest tonight. Please welcome father, grandfather, husband, friend, and Hall of Fame sports broadcaster, Dick Enberg. Thank you. Got all kinds of material here. Good. Always prepared. going. They can look at these later if they'd like. Actually, they have some uh, USC connections here. These are my, well, some call them cheat sheets. I didn't like that as a professor, nor right. as, a stu as a student. They're just good preparation. And uh, it happens that looking over it, there's some USC uh, Trojan influence on 
all of this as well. Terrific. Thank Terrific. you for inviting me. Welcome. Was that a eul that sounded like a eulogy, yeah. didn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah, when you get my age, uh, you outlive all the competition. So you start getting awards, and then you get people uh, saying all these nice things. Uh, hey, Stan, uh, gracious. Hey, Stan Charnowski, well, an All-America. Uh, you, have you already introduced well, no. him? No. Remember I told you I had a surprise yeah, for you? Yeah, that's a great surprise. How about that? Uh, yeah, all, he and his twin brother were All-America uh, middle infielders for the USC Trojans uh, back in the 50s. Both signed the major league uh, or minor league contracts, and they both uh, rose to AAA ball, which would be major league baseball in these days. And my good fortune when I came out from Indiana to teach and coach at San Fernando Valley State College was that they had also hired Stan Charnowski is the head coach, and I was his assistant baseball coach. He's a dear, dear man, great friend. And uh, when you talk about uh, educators that should have statues on campus, here's a man that, that should. And we, we're getting closer and closer to that, I think, Stan. But thank you so much for coming. That's a wonderful, wonderful surprise. <laughs> and I'm very touched by that. Very good, very good. See, uh, Bob Pearlberg, my good friend, who's the president of the Trojan Baseball Alumni Association, played baseball at SC, brought Stan, and when he was giving me some background, he said Stan has a master's and his PhD from USC in marriage and family counseling. Yeah, so, and he's still teaching at, uh, at uh, Northridge, right? Cal State Northridge. He's still a regular. Yeah, he uh, you know, looks younger than when we were coaching. You came out of it better, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to mention just uh, a couple of the people I thought you'd enjoy uh, knowing that we're in the audience tonight. Or Stan Morrison yes, right over Stan. here, of course. And Good to see you again. Thank you. Yeah, he brought Mike Goldware and Jerry Hurley, his posse from Riverside, all, all right. the way out here. Jerry runs the Hall of Fame in Riverside, Sports Hall of Fame. All right. And um, my friend Bob Leach, of course, who played baseball at USC. You've met Bob before. And uh, one of the great basketball players in the history of this university is Matt Calvin, oh, right there. Hey. Um, this is a guy who played, and Matt came last week, you guys remember, played 10 years in the league, um, played in the NBA and ABA, averaged 16 points a game, four rebounds, five assists, he coached nine years, seven with the Bucks and two with the Clippers, and uh, just a great, great guy. What was your last year here, Matt? What was your graduating year here? 1960, uh, 70, so I called your game, yeah, several times, yeah. 12 years. 12, okay. I'll give you those two extra ones, sure. <laughs> by, the way, by the way, you uh, young folks, uh, in the uh, era of Calvin, uh, in order to get to the NCAA tournament, you had to win your conference championship. You didn't, there wasn't this wild card or uh, if you were second best or you had a great record. And one year, the, the Trojans were 24-2 and two and didn't make it to the NCAA tournament. The only two losses were to... UCLA and UCLA won the, the uh, conference championship, so they went. USC didn't get their chance. Maybe the, the greatest team in the history of USC and one of the greatest that ever didn't make it to the big big show. Yeah, that was a you know, great group. Yeah, yeah. My friend Jeffrey Thauser came all the way out from New York. His son's a former student of mine. He pops in whenever he can. Just He always you know, wants to know who's coming, and when he found out you were going to be here, made sure that it was well-timed to be here. Um, Marion Beckman is like second mom for me right here in the front row in Long Beach. We had all, all these games that we treasure so much as kids. So many of them were with her family. I'm, I'm thrilled always to see her. Barry Israel, Dr. Barry Israel, Dennis brought her it's today. a slow night, huh? You had to come here, huh? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Cheap entertainment, right? Um, and, uh, and someone else that uh, I thought you would enjoy... Um, 
well, I mentioned Kevin Lamp, whose brother Dennis Lamp had a, had a, a good career pitching in the, in the major Absolutely. league, brother Kevin, and he's brought his son with him. And um, one of my favorite USC baseball players of all time is also one of, the, one of my favorite major league players, Don Buford, leading oh, off. Oh, hey, Donnie, great to leading see Leading off and yeah. playing left field for the Orioles. Yeah, yeah and you know, always this, it's the same smile right there that yes. lights up the room. Yes. I mean, you always knew when you were going to uh, go play the Angels and play Baltimore, and they had such great teams. You know, that was the Brooks Robinson and Mark Belanger and Boog Powell and Andy Echeverry and, and, and Donnie Buford out there in center field. And you couldn't get him out. I mean, he just, he led off in those days, didn't you? Most of the time, led off and you couldn't get him out. He either hit you or he, you walked him. And the next thing I know, you're down 2 nothing before you come up the next go-round. Great, great, great person. Thanks, Donnie, for coming. Don's also the four, uh, led USC football in rushing one season. Uh, because that was a way for him to get a scholarship to be able to afford to come to USC. Mm -hmm. Baseball wasn't giving out uh, uh, very many. They still don't, but, uh, but football was his kind of ticket to, to, to be at the school and get, get his education. His you didn't get a scholarship in Jargonski? You didn't get a, a scholarship to come here? I got an academic scholarship. Academic scholarship. Okay, that's how He's you also, Don, Don's also answered a great tribute. We were talking, I asked him one day, hey, uh, Don, where were you in 71 during the All-Star game when Reggie Jackson, that famous game with all the Hall of Famers, the home run off the light standard in Detroit? Mm -hmm. I really didn't know. And Don said, uh, I was in the American League dugout. He'd made the All-Star team that year. So the trivia question is, the next time Reggie Jackson came up after hitting the home run, who batted for him because it was an all-star game. <laughs> Don Buford pinch hit for Reggie Jackson That's a good after that home run that <laughs> went 500 some odd feet. You didn't quite hit quite that far, I, I imagine. Struck out. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect story. Perfect. <laughs> uh, that was, by the way, I don't mean to interrupt no, you. Please, but, don't. But, you know, I grew up in Michigan and, and uh, Briggs Stadium when I was a kid Tiger, became Tiger Stadium. was just a... Uh, a dream ballpark for a left-handed hitter, and, and Jackson, not to take anything away from Reggie, and that was an incredible blast. Uh, and as you've already indicated, I, I, my idol growing up was Ted Williams, and my book is going to be entitled Being Ted Williams. I wanted to be him. In my life, I made a great uh, cycle. Of, uh, I was 18 years behind him, but from wanting to be him and following him without him knowing it all the way to the ballpark in Detroit, just to be that close to Ted Williams, to as an announcer meeting when he was the manager of the Washington uh, uh, Senators uh, to uh, my sports challenge show that he was a guest on several times to uh, then coming at the end of uh, his life, coming back home to San Diego. And I moved to San Diego and now we had a chance to go to have breakfast together, lunch together, my idol talking baseball with me and even saying, you know, Enberg, you're the best. I, he probably said that about everyone, but I, I accept that as yeah. a great compliment from Ted Williams, but that's a long preface to the fact that he loved hitting in Detroit uh, because of the short right field porch and there was an overhang in second deck that made it even uh, an easier home run. And uh, late in his career, uh, he played till 42, there were rumors that Williams would be traded to Detroit and we were all, I was excited because he was the, my idol, but we were excited because he just would rip that place apart. And, uh, and uh, before he died, we were talking about, uh, was there ever a chance, did you think, that you might be traded to Detroit when you were 37, 38, or 90? He said, yeah, there's a lot of rumors. I said, if you had played a full season with Detroit as your home ballpark, how many home I didn't even get the question out. Uh, how many home runs? What, 
80, he said, 80. <laughs> and that would have been some, some kind of joy for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, Dick, when you walk, you're a professor. Um, education's always been important. You have your doctorate degree. I should have said Dr. Dick Enberg is with us tonight. What, what's your thoughts you have when you walk into a college classroom? And if you reflect back on um, when you were in college, what you thought you'd be doing for a living someday? Well, I uh, wasn't planning to be a broadcaster. That all happened in a, in a long and convoluted way. I applied for a custodial job at a dollar an hour as a student at Central Michigan, and uh, the general manager said, you've got a decent voice, Enberg, and he threw me into a, uh, a little room, studio, and gave me a five-minute news summary and a couple of commercials and said, I'm going to turn on a tape recorder. You just read this. And I, I said, don't I get a chance to look it over first? He said, no, no, I just want to see what you can do. And so, hey, I was a junior at Central Michigan, a Chippewa, and I could read, you know. And so, uh, <laughs> so I performed uh, for him. And three weeks later, he, uh, uh, I got word from the station a little. Said that they, there was no TV in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. This was just a very small 500-watt, maybe 1,000-watt station. And he said, come in. He said, you've got the job. And I said, well, where's the broom closet? He said, no, you're, you're our new weekend disc jockey. I didn't even know how the turntables worked. I mean, I, uh, I never knew when I was on because every record would start to because I had miscued them. Uh, and uh, he, uh, I said with a brightened eyes, I said, well, how much, uh, you know, not sweeping the floors now if I'm the disc jockey and occasionally I do some sports news, how much do, does that pay? A dollar an hour. <laughs> so you can see they weren't looking for any quality at all, but it was my opportunity. And, and that's how my broadcast uh, career uh, began. But all the while, it helped me at Central to pay uh, for a date now and then. And then when I went to Indiana, I, uh, there were auditions for the new Indiana University Sports Network. And because I had some experience and I was a graduate student and the others competing for that were undergraduates, and I won that audition. So for four years at Indiana, I did their football and basketball games. And then when I came out to teach and coach uh, with Stan Charnowski and a, a really a brilliant cast of young professors, when I think back of uh, the talent that was on that campus, and we were, what, three years old at the time the university was, college then, but university now, of course, um, that uh, uh, teaching was going to be my life, and maybe I could. Uh, supplement uh, a poor teacher's income. I was making, I think I'm right here, Stan, 4200 a year was, the, yeah, 4200 a year with a doctorate teaching. Did you feel overpaid? In 1961. Uh, yeah. Well, if you saved and really saved, you could take your wife. There was a place up in Chatsworth um, uh, where you, they had a special on a Friday night, 95 cents, you could get a hamburger and a little salad and a beer. And then that was the treat, because you really had to save, save to get that a couple of bucks so you and your wife could have this special, special treat. And, and it's a long way, and unfortunately, I, I, I don't uh, answer very quickly. Oh, I, no, I, I love apologize, it. I apologize. No, for no, that. not at all. But, but my experience as a uh, teacher, both at Indiana, while earning my master's and doctorate, and at um, San Fernando Valley State College, I've often felt that that was my greatest ally as a broadcaster, was having to prepare for 50 bright students every day, and the challenge of the raised hand. You know, the, the, uh, there's some of you, our teachers are mm -hmm. half taught. There, there is something magical about uh, being a, uh, a teacher at any level and knowing that if you've motivated your students, uh, 
that you're going to have to answer the challenge of a raised hand. And, and, and this noble profession of education, uh, it isn't about the money. It's about the young people that you, you may have uh, influence and that challenge you with their hand so that you have to be better so that they might uh, enjoy the benefit of whatever research and preparation you make. And that's where I learned to prepare as I prepare for a bro Every broadcast is like a lecture. Only it's not the point, 15 well. minutes and the bell rings. Uh, you go three hours in a football game or a couple of hours in a basketball game. And you have to be prepared. And these, these are my lecture notes uh, doing an NFL football game or a NBA or college basketball game. And so that preparation as an educator, to me, set me apart from some of the others who didn't have the privilege of being in front of a classroom. Uh, so, and I said, I said to Great you, stuff. coming here now, that there's something really magical about being on a campus. Yeah, just the energy of young people, and what they're all headed for something great. They all have an opportunity to be great, and 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 this university and others are helping you to get on that path, uh, so that you might have the successful career that we old guys and women have. You know, it's a. And, and uh, I'm energized by being here, and, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely, Dick. It's, it's an honor for us. I wanted to mention, too, we're talking about education. My friend Gary Metzger is here, who's, who uh, I've known for a long time. He used to uh, be a writer and editor at the Long Beach Press-Telegram. He's now teaching journalism at Long Beach State. He brought a journalism class with him oh, tonight. Good. So I'm, Got the 49ers here, huh? Right. Yeah. Not the dirt bags, but because uh, that's just baseball, as this class now knows, the 49ers. Um, so, Dick, you said um, somewhere that I read that you, you were comparing TV versus radio. Said, you said with TV, you're like a docent, guiding the audience through the experience, while radio is a blank canvas where you have to paint everything. And I thought that was a really interesting way. And such an on-the-mark way to characterize the two mediums. Well, it, uh, television, as an announcer, is almost cheating. I mean, it's just that the, the video is the star on television, and uh, you try to complement it, and that's where the docent line is. You try to uh, hear the tones, and here's some background, here's a little more about the individual, here's more about the history and maybe the humor. You just add to what the, the obvious uh, strength of, of that experience is the video. I mean... Uh, basically, I think many times at Wimbledon, you know, if we talk at all, we're really violating. And you have the sound of the tennis racket against ball, the, the English being so polite about how they applaud and how fair they are to all of the uh, competitors. You have the chair umpire calling the score. <laughs> so you've got everything right there. You really don't need to say anything. And in fact, uh, BBC, when they cover tennis there at, at Wimbledon, they don't talk during the point. There's a rule. You do not, once the ball is struck, you don't talk. But they don't have commercials, so they have the opportunity to fill in with the information about players and history and where it's all going in, in between games where we have to break for commercial to pay the dumb announcer's salary. So, uh, but, but we do all talk too much. Uh, we should get paid by the word, you know, really. That should be, uh, and, and I do. I talk too much. Uh, and, and we all do. The, the, the video is so powerful that uh, uh, it, it gives you basically what you want. You can only add, hopefully, to it. Now, radio, you better know what you're talking about. You, now you are the artist. You are the painter. You, you are painting the picture for the audience. Yeah, I often thought that I, I'm broadcasting and everyone is blind. No one can see. 
So they have to rely totally on my words to paint the picture so they might be able to appreciate uh, the experience. And, and in many ways, listening to a game of uh, uh, any sport on radio is, is so much more exciting than television. Mm -hmm. You really get involved in the game more and in the personalities uh, of the game. And, and we, anyone who's ever loved baseball, probably have all, we've all done the same thing, uh, even before transistor radios, trying to sneak that radio under our pillow so we could hear the end of the game, uh, even though our parents would say, oh, you're, you're going to sleep now, aren't you? And of course, they knew exactly what we were doing. We we're going to listen to the ball game until our team, our team won. And so it's, uh, if you had 100 students, okay, mm -hmm. and you said they're all going to be play-by-play -play announcers, uh, and I want you to pick out the one right now that has the best future as a sports broadcaster. I'd have all your students do one baseball game, one baseball game. And I'd listen to that, and the student that can call baseball well on radio can call any other sport. If you can be, uh, and think of Scully, I mean, he could have, he did golf for a while, he did football, he did the catch, Dwight Clark catch. He could have called any sport. He elected to just concentrate on the Dodgers, and so he had more home life. Uh, but that's how I'd, I would pick out the best student. Uh, how well can you call a baseball game? Sam, did you hear that? Cha the, okay. challenge, the challenge is incredible. You know, because, and when young students, I, I like it when they say, well, would you mind listening to my tape? I hit a baseball game. And I said, it only takes about four or five minutes. They'll always play a, a double play or yeah. a triple or an exciting moment. And I just wait because I know what's coming. And they'll finally say, but Dr. Enberg, what do you do when the pitcher won't throw the ball? <laughs> I said, that, that's exactly the essence. Anyone can say ground ball to short, throw the first two away. But what do you do in between uh, when that pitcher won't throw the ball and there is an action? Then you better be prepared to tell stories and bring in humor and relate uh, something about the individual at bat or the pitcher on the mound. And uh, and dead air is exactly that. It's yeah. uh, it's fatal for your career in radio. You better not have dead air. You've got to fill those voids. Television, you just sit back and let the cameraman take his shots, and now and then make a comment, and you're you're home free. So. But is it, is it was the transition from radio to TV challenging because you're you're you were taught to 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 talk. Mm -hmm. So did you have to catch yourself to not talk too much when oh, yeah. the pictures were in great, front of you? Great question, Jeff. Exactly. You know, it, it would be uh, really difficult if your career started on television, which w there was no chance of that when I grew up. But yeah. now you could almost almost happen now, and then go to radio because you're used and you can hear some of the radio announcers now. They're obviously watching the game from the booth on TV. You say, as you can see, there's I can see I'm in my car. I can't see. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. No, they're not not calling the game the way we were forced to call it, where we didn't have the access of having the television monitor so that if there's a close play at second base, uh, we had to fill all that in. The calls made, the uh, managers running out of the dugout, Earl Weaver's going to get thrown out again, Buford was safe. Uh, the, uh, where uh, on, on, on television, that's, that's all, all taken care of uh, for you. And uh, uh, Radio, you have to fill. As you said, it's the, it's a, the baseball is truly the announcer sport. You, it's the only team sport without a clock. Right. So when you're preparing, I mean, you've got to come up with stuff. That's why you get to the park early uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and hang out by the batting cage and talk to players. I mean, it's kind of scary to think, I might have a lot of time to fill. Well, I probably will. Oh, no, you, you know. That's, yeah. a, that's a given. You're going to have time to fill. And um, uh, 
Um, yeah, everyone uh, makes fun of me. I, I didn't bring my baseball scorebook, but um, it's one of the biggest in captivity. And uh, and just to switch a bit to football, now here, and, and for a football game, here's an offensive uh, lineup. This happens to be uh, uh, the Jets. Bill Parcells uh, is the head coach. Keyshawn Johnson, a Trojan out there at wide receiver. And uh, here's the defense of the uh, Oakland Raiders, Ronnie Lott, a Trojan at safety, and uh, yeah, there's an, oh, Ricky Ellison was the middle linebacker. So that, uh, I do two for each team, offense, defense for each team. So I literally do four of these uh, in preparation for a football game. And I do it myself. People say, well, well, can't you just take that and put it in the computer? Well, by the time you, you pull it out of the computer, the moment's gone. I know, I know exactly where the notes on individual players are here. So I know it, it, when, when a play is made, I can go to Ricky Ellison from Southern California. He's in his ninth year here with the Oakland Raiders, 6'2", 225 pounds. In 1990, he was claimed on waivers from San Francisco by Oakland. He is, you know, he was a research analyst uh, at Lockheed Star Wars, Ricky Ellison from USC. And he has political ambitions. I don't know if those have ever materialized. And, uh, <laughs> so, and his wife, Sheila, ex-USC song girl. So you, you may not use any of that, but it's there if I needed uh, to use it. And especially in baseball, those kinds of notes uh, are, are, are totally necessary to... Uh, to uh, deliver a proper broadcast. So, what? What? T tell me about the time commitment to the in preparation. Like, say you're on the road, the game's over. It's a night game. Maybe you grab some need. So, maybe you're back at your in your room eleven ish between ten and eleven. You got a game the next day. What? What sort of? What? What is your routine during those years? The baseball routine. Uh, you mostly night games now. So you would get back to you know, hopefully it's not a four hour game. You get back, uh, Donnie. I guess your two and a half hours was a long game your day. Now it's over three hours, you almost have to count on that or longer. So you get back to the hotel on the road. It's 11 o'clock. You're, you're still full of adrenaline. You want, you're trying to wind down yourself. So that's a perfect time to take out, uh, your baseball scorebook out. Okay, it's game three of the series. What are the notes that uh, I had for the game tonight I didn't use? Transfer those over for the sheet the next day. You know, along with a scorecard in my scorebook, I had big places above the scorecard where I could write personal notes. And in a column to the left, a personal note about uh, the player himself uh, in the lineup that they would draw. And uh, that takes a couple of hours. And then you get to the ballpark about three hours before the game. It's interesting, and, 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 uh, and it's why Scully is a, a, the poet laureate of, of our profession, not just baseball, of, of the broadcasting profession. That here he is, uh, he's going to turn 90s in it, 90. coming up. Yeah. Uh, and talk about a young 90. Uh, as, as proud as I am of getting there early and being as prepared, I, I, I wanted to get the A on every game. I mean, it was like uh, being a student. I, I want to get an A in this broadcast. Mm -hmm. I didn't come here to get a C. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever we uh, were up here to do the Dodger games, uh, our booth is right next door to the Dodger booth. Skelly was there every day before I got there. So here's a man, the best ever, and he's Making Nothing sure to prove, and he, yet he could he could have come in ten minutes before the game and entertained us, but instead he was there to make sure that he was going to be the best he could be. Your your wooden quotes, best he could be every night. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, can I? Uh, he, he I, on this podcast, uh, I didn't know what a damn podcast was, uh, and and somebody asked me to do it, and it's really been great. Only in that 
I loved as part of my job in all the sports of finding the the human stories mm -hmm. to to make uh, the athlete was more than a number. He, I wanted you to care about him as a as a person, personality, uh, and uh, uh, and so the podcast because they want forty five minutes to an hour. That's a long interview. Mm -hmm. uh, it allows me to really dig deeply uh, into my guests and find out things. I, I did Johnny Bench yesterday, and he came up with some incredible What was the best stuff. thing? What was the best thing you remember? Wow. Bench. Was, oh, there was so much about him. He, well, the most uh, topical uh, was uh, should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? And, uh, and here's Johnny Bench and Pete Rose were part of the big, uh, great red machine. And he said, when people say, that, I get it all the time. He says, he started at Hedge and he wasn't going to answer. And then I said, come on, you got to answer. He said, people ask me all the time. And I, I turned around and said, if someone in your workplace uh, violated some basic rules that uh, were uh, heinous in terms of, you know, in baseball, the first thing you see when you walk into a clubhouse is the commissioner's notes, you do not gamble. That's the first thing every you know, player sees when he goes to work each day. Uh, how would you respond to that? Would you continue to give him a Christmas bonus? Would you continue to uh, include him in all the favors you have in, in your business? And what if he continued to do it and denied it and continued? What are you going to do about that? You're going you're gonna to allow him to stay in the, in the fraternity and the company? So that was, I thought, a, a really good answer. Mm -hmm. Ted Williams had a good answer as well. Ted, late in his career, to, to his incredible credit, and by the way, one of the beauties about Don, about doing the research on this book, as a white superstar, he was so far ahead of any white great players in, in supporting uh, athletes of color in the Negro League Baseball. In his, in his Cooperstown speech, induction speech in 1966, uh, they, six minutes, or he had six minutes, the last minute of his speech, after saying the obvious, you know, I'm, I'm joining the greatest players in the history of the game, and I'm honored, and da, da, da. The last minute of his speech, he said, but you know, this Baseball Hall of Fame will never be complete until the day where the great players from the Negro League are included at Cooperstown. Three years later, Satchel Paige was in. Here is a, a white superstar on the pulpit of Cooperstown supporting the black player. It yeah. gives me shivers to think about you know, the things awesome. he did. And yeah, you'll have awesome. to buy the book to get the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. We talked earlier in the semester. I mean, a big thing of mine is, you know, this, the whole thing with the steroid era and maybe they should put asterisks because of how much different it would be if maybe if you didn't have... I always say, how much different would baseball have been all those years when they didn't allow players of color? You think that the averages might have been different if you were facing Satchel Paige or yeah. Josh Gibson would have piled up some numbers? You but bet they would have. You know, asterisks belong in, you know, in, a, in, the, in a baseball record book. Jackie Robinson wasn't the best uh, Negro player at the time, uh, but he was the right fit for that time. And I, I think O'Malley made the right, we all feel, or baseball feels that they made the right choice in yeah. that regard. I was going in another direction, and then I, I was thinking about, uh, oh, Ted. Yeah. Uh, so uh, late in his uh, uh, life, coming back to San Diego, and, and I just think this makes me admire him all the more. Hey, he had warts, and he did some things, but a lot of that was the, the venomous Boston writers that would get, it, get his goat, and he'd answer back, and that would give him a column for the next day, and he'd answer that. But anyway, um, he said he was, he was trying to promote the induction to the Baseball Hall of Fame 
of Shoeless Joe Jackson. Shoeless Joe Jackson is, I think, in the top five career batting averages all time in the major league. How many of you guys know the name? Shoeless Joe Jackson. Okay. Okay. From the Black Sox scandal, right? 1919. Well, he, you know, uh, implicated but never convicted. Right. He hit 350 in the series. And, and Kennesaw Mountain uh, Landis was the commissioner. He was the god. When he said it, that was it. There was no second chance. You're banned for life. So Ted Williams, bless his heart, he's campaigning for Shoeless Joe to get in the Cooper, into Cooperstown. He belongs there. And I said, oh, hey, Ted, no, no, no. If you do that, then you've got to let Pete Rose in. And he said, Edinburgh, he said, the penalty for uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson was banned for life. Pete Rose hasn't served the sentence yet. <laughs> that was a pretty good answer. Yeah. Right, right. Wow, indeed. Don, what's your what's your thought about Pete Rose and whether you, you having played the game and seen that sign every day when you walk in? Well, the known fact that that sign is there and have to expect it, but it's just that. Mm-hmm. Have to that's su- the reality part of it. Yeah. If you couldn't hear back, that's the reality. You suffer the consequences. Those are the rules, you know. You have a, you have a choice every day, every one of you, to follow the rules. Yeah. And they're, if you do, you do well. If you don't, you have to expect the consequences. That's life itself. So your, your, your signature phrases, uh, I love, by the way, the, 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 the imprint on the, the Petco Park field of Omai. That was, that was great. They should just leave, they should leave it there. It should be there permanently. Although, you know, the Omai has a lot of, you know, it's the way you deliver it. In, in the case of the Padres losing a lot of games, it's, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Dodgers would be, oh, my. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so, oh, my, and, and touch them all was your... Was your home run call? Mm-hmm. How, how did those? Touch them all started with uh, Coach Charnowski at San Fernando Valley State. Who uh, knew? I had the JV team, and we'd we'd be in the late innings and have a, a guy on. Maybe we could uh, get a get a home run here, and I'd say, "Hey, touch them all! Let's go, touch them all!" And so when I got the Angel job, all the home run calls have been taken by now. You know? So I thought, well, I'll try touch them all, and. Uh, Chuck Tanner, who was with the Angels at the time, was running the uh, the Arizona League uh, operation, and they I had never called a, a minor league or a major league game. I'd called some little league games, and that's about it. But Gene Autry had decided he wanted me to be the Angel announcer, and so I went down there and I with a tape recorder and sat up in the grandstand in Arizona and felt conspicuous, hoping people weren't listening to me, <laughs> and 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 called those games into a tape recorder. And uh, and somebody hit a home run, and I said, "Then Joe Smith will touch them all." And Tanner later kindly, we were back having a beer after the game. I said, "Would you mind just listening to a couple of innings and, and tell me what you think? If you think it's not good, I'm, you know, I want it to be good." And and the home run came up, and and the call. And he said, "I like it. Touch them all. Yeah, I use that one." So so Chuck Tanner had a, a influence on that. Yeah, uh, that's great. And the old my, you were asking where the, the old my, my came yeah, from. from. My mother. Yeah, and then how many of you have some Midwestern upbringing? Most of you are from a few of you have. It's it is when you're back in the Midwest anytime. Just listen to to the people in public. Oh my is such a common expression. It's an expression of acknowledgement. You know, you'll, the two women will be checking out the grocery store, 
And one will say to the other, did you hear about the Kelly boy? Oh, my, yes. How <laughs> and, 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 the other said, and how about the game on Friday night? We came from behind. Oh, oh my. That was Oh, my is a constant expression. It's a, an acknowledgment. And my mother used it all the time. Sadly, often it was, wait, uh, Richard, oh, my, wait till your father comes home. <laughs> but, but when I went to Indiana and, and uh, earned the uh, audition to, to call their games, I thought, well, you know, all, you know, holy, all the holies have been taken. Holy cow and holy <laughs> yeah. Toledo and yeah. all the holies. And, and uh, the, the two great uh, baseball announcers of my growing up were uh, Mel Allen and his was, uh, well, how about that? And uh, Red Barber uh, was, uh, oh gosh, I'm having a brain cramp here. Uh, mm, I'll think of it. Mm. Um, anyway. Uh, That's so interesting. I, uh, the, the idea of that the, most of them are taken. Yeah. The one, one well, now going, going, gone was an obvious course, one, yeah. and, uh, and 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 Skelly's was just, uh, and she's she's gone. She's gone. She's gone. He went to the feminine uh, uh, route. Um, the um, oh, I'm one one the, today that I I don't like. That probably some of you guys will. Disagree, but I don't like big fly. That's and that's and, uh, that's another one. Doesn't just doesn't. That's resonate the same with me. guy that wants to call the foul line the fair line. I mean, uh, and that's uh, right because you you, have the, you, you you hit the foul pole and it's a home run. Why would you? Why would that be the foul pole? So it should be the fair pole, and and so they want to change the whole history of baseball and use their uh, uh, their own language. The other one, and this is got me going now. Let's go. Okay, bring it. So the new announcers come in and they say. Uh, and he, Smith has 23 RBI, not 23 RBIs, 23 RBI. And, and, and so I said, well, how, so I, I said, why do you say RBI? We've been saying RBIs for all these years. They're RBIs. He said, no, it's RBI, runs batted in. And, uh, and I, then I say, it was, well, if you're going to think in that regard, wouldn't it be ours, B.I.? Huh? <laughs> Good. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be Runs batted in, R.B.I. They're not going to call you your singular R.B.I. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what home run calls do you got? Is, is there any that... Back, back, back. Yeah, back, 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 back. Yeah. A Berman? Yeah. Is that kind of his... Yeah. Kind of took thing. that from Keith Jackson. Yeah, it's a Out of here, yeah. It's, now and then I, I, I've used that, you know. They, uh, it's interesting, when I first started with the Padres, and we are so uh, uh, provincial down there, um, you know, the, we, we only have our county. <laughs> you know, we're, we're stuck between ocean, desert, uh, the border, and two major league teams to the north. And uh -huh. so it's only us down there. So they're, they're a little sensitive about that. So I... I've come from calling uh, network games where, you know, I'm, I'm calling it down the middle. I really uh -huh. tried to check myself when I was doing a football, basketball game. Am I talking too much about one team? I got to talk about the other team. Am I giving each a fair shake? And one of the real compliments, Stan, back when I was doing UCLA was the, the coaches uh, would come in for the weekend series. Let's say it's Oregon, Oregon State. Oregon would play USC on Friday night while Oregon uh, State was playing UCLA and then they'd switch on Saturday. So the, uh, the games were tape delayed at 11 o'clock. One of my great decisions, that'll never work. But it became really a, really a cult uh, following. So the coach uh, that was going to play UCLA the next night was playing USC tonight, would go back to the room and part of his scouting and just interest maybe, he'd listen to our telecast. So he would hear the way I called the game. 
And, and, and several times, coaches come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I really like the fact that you give the opposing teams a fair shake on mm -hmm. your telecast. Mm -hmm. And I thought, see, that's, I'm trying to do that. I'm, yeah. Yes, I'm the UCLA announcer. I'm calling, I'm, I wasn't the UCLA announcer. I called the UCLA games, but I was not the UCLA announcer. I was the announcer of the game. And the same when I did Notre Dame. They said, oh, you're going to be the Notre Dame announcer. No, no, I'm not. I'm going to be the Notre, I'm going to call the Notre Dame games, but I'm not the Notre Dame announcer. Yeah, it's an important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you told me a story about one of your first years in San Diego when, when the Padres president, team president, called you in because they'd gotten a complaint. Now think about this, like how you would, you know, if you're in, if you're in an announcer's chair, called in because they'd gotten a complaint that Dick's call, home run call, he got too excited for a visiting home run. Yeah, touch them all. I, I used touch them all. I said, no, no, that's the San Diego home run goal. Yeah, you don't use that for the other team, too. Uh, God, I mean, are we a little sensitive on that? There, you know, like <laughs> well, you got are. too excited because... We, we, we are down there. I mean, we are. And, and it was, uh, uh, I gave, uh, the other was Matt Camp was playing for the uh, Dodgers. He was in center field and made one of those great catches running into... Uh, uh, the left center, shallow ball, full speed, diving, making one of those one-handed catches off the top of the grass, and I, and an oh my came out. It was an oh my play, and uh, yeah, and I was called in on that and said, you know, you kind of should use oh my for you know the the Padres could play. Well, I might not use it for a month, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and, and I, I said, you know, my dad and my argument was. My wonderful father loved baseball. My mother did too. I, I, I have it uh, DNA. The, my, it's in my 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 genes, and and uh, and I, I will say going to Cooperstown was the greatest weekend of my life. And Dick is in the baseball. Was inducted into into the baseball hall of fame. Uh, uh, my dad. How about that? How about that? The baseball hall of fame. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's probably what Stan was thought many times. Are you kidding me? And we're the, assist, the assistant coaches in the hall of fame. Uh, my dad, we lived on a farm. Uh, and went to a, until high school. Went to a one-room school, and and we had no indoor plumbing. It was a Spartan life. We didn't know we were poor, but we had baseball was a common denominator. My mother knew the game. My dad loved the game, and we shared our love for the Tigers because they were our team. And so the first time, 1947, I went to a major league baseball game, and we'd lived here during the war. We lived in the San Fernando Valley. That's kind of how I wound up. Uh, applying for the job at San Fernando Valley State. Um, it was, we had great Pacific Coast League ball. Mm -hmm. We had both mm -hmm. the Hollywood Stars and the LA Angels. Um, but, uh, and they played at Wrigley Field, old Wrigley Field and Gilmore Stadium uh, for the Stars. Anyway, so it, now we're going to go to my first major league game. And uh, we leave the farm with all our fruit trees. We had an apple farm. And we drive down into Detroit with all the concrete buildings. It's hardly a tree in the entire city. Mm -hmm. And we pull into some the side street. My dad parks our truck. And uh, we have tickets in the bleachers. Uh, 50 cents probably is what they cost. So we, before uh, we, we climb the, the ramp, and now we're about to go through the tunnel that takes you out into the bleacher seats. My dad says, I want you to always remember this. Uh, you're not going to be walking into a stadium, even though they call it that, nor an arena. You're in the, you've just seen where we are. We're in the middle of a city, and in the middle of this city, you're going to walk into a ball park. This is a park in the middle of the city where they play baseball. 
And any of you who have any love for baseball, how about that very first time you walked into a major league park and you saw that grass and those dimensions and, oh my, that's it. <laughs> and so my dad taught, taught me to love uh, baseball from, from that uh, point of view. And the other was, in those days, and it's changed now and so many things have changed, most of it for the good, uh, was that when the opposing player made a great catch, especially defense, we, you didn't cheer the opposing guy's home run, but if an opposing player made a great defensive play, when he ran back to the dugout, we, we applauded it. Yeah. When our guy did, we cheered it, right? right. But we applauded it. And, and to me, and I've said it on the air, and, and the owners have heard it, and they uh, I guess in respect to my age, they haven't called me into their offices, but uh, I think that fans are really missing something if they don't enjoy the great performances by both sides. Mm -hmm. There are 18 players in action, and some of those may not be wearing your home uniform just because they make a great play. You're going to boo them and not enjoy the fact. I mean, so what? Maybe it does cost you the game. But if you don't enjoy a beautiful moment in a sport, uh, you might as well rip that ticket in half. You're not uh, getting the full price. Are there cities where you go and you still hear? I mean, we always hear about St. what a great. Louis is pretty good. We always hear St. Louis what a great baseball town it is. Um, um, yeah, the you know the Dodgers are guilty of you know everyone's gone in the seventh inning. You know, it's uh, uh, right. Um, it's uh, the reality uh, of living, and, and it's true. Uh, true of uh, San Francisco really has become a pretty you know with their success. Hey, World Series do that for you, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and it, it sounds like I'm, you know, uh, blowing in the wind here on, on talking about, you know, some of the things, uh, the honors there. But I really do think that finally the Padres are doing it the right way and they're going to build from within it. The Padres are in a position now where Houston was three years ago, and they've got an immense amount of talent. They've put all their money into the minor leagues. They've got coaches and managers all with the same theme. They're building together. And, and I'm, I'm hoping I can live, I've never had a championship ring. So I'm, wow. I, I may be uh, saying all this with my heart, but I'm just, uh, I'm hoping that uh, I can live long enough that I'll be able to be on that curb and applaud a, a Padres World Series team. How many Padres fans in here? Do we have, do we have too any? many, huh? We have a few, yeah, okay. All right, all right Fernando. Not easy, there's a couple, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had a great hitter in Tony Gwynn. We had, he's probably our greatest player ever. Yeah. And uh, Proud of him being from Long Beach, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, ask, oh, about um, um, baseball. Uh, the, we, we were, I was talking with my friend David Barling over, over here before before we started tonight about um, when you have a chance to broadcast in his prime Nolan Ryan and, and, and any night that he could that he went out there, you thought you might see a, no, yeah. something special. And we were thinking, what were the games that Dick would have broadcast? It was the one in Detroit. I think that, that was his did second. A second, and then in Kansas City, we were trying to think that of the ones. That was his first. So, so those both the same year, '73. Yeah. What, what, what was that experience like? Um, ha having him knowing he'd be out there every fourth day, and then those particularly those two days. He had twelve one hitters. I think one was against uh, the Orioles at, at uh, Anaheim Stadium. Two outs in the ninth inning, no hitter, and he jams whoever was at the plate for the Orioles. He jams the hitter, and he doesn't even get a decent pop fly. It's just a soft fly ball on the infield. And uh, as I recall, Rudy Maoli and Dave Chalk were the middle infielders, and Rudy looked at Dave, and Dave looked at Rudy, and the ball landed right on second base for a hit. Didn't, it wasn't even, even touched. That cost him a no-hitter. But he pitched 12 one-hitters, uh, wow. seven no-hitters. 
uh, seven no hitters and twelve one hitters. And uh, the second one, one in May, he pitched uh, his first in Kansas City, and we were on television that night, so that was special. But the, in July, uh, it was right around the Fourth of July in Detroit, uh, in a hitter's ballpark, and this is where I grew up as a major league fan, and and uh, the broadcast booths in that stadium were hung off the second deck. They were just uh, uh, cages that they built, and, and you hung on. So you were closer to home plate than any other ballpark in baseball. I mean, you could hear conversations in a quiet moment around home plate. Wow. And, and so you, first of all, of all the things I've done and I'm privileged to do, there, and people say, well, what's the most exciting uh, for you as a broadcast? A no-hitter. There's nothing that compares with a no-hitter in any sport. Wow. Because you can have a long bomb at the end of the game, and that football net's great, or somebody hits a shot from midcourt, that's exciting too. And uh, you know, you can have a great rush in hockey, and, and, and it culminates in a, a, a goal, a game-winning goal. But in a no-hitter, you've got about 45 minutes of theater. You've got this drama starting in the seventh inning. You look up, and they're all zeros, and now it starts to count. And every out gets you closer. And now every movement in the dugout and every subtle change on the infield means something. And now in the eighth, oh, there's even the dumb fans are starting to realize we got we got, we got a no hitter going here. Yeah. And, and and it builds, and often, most often it, it doesn't materialize. But if it gets you to that ninth inning, and that's when. I was really proud, of, and again, it wasn't a Padre pitcher, but my last of nine, I called nine, Tim Lincecum at, um, at uh, our ballpark at Petco is pitching uh, the no-hitter, and there are a lot of Giants fans there. They come down because they can get good seats. <laughs> they get good seats, uh, right. And, and in that ninth inning, basically with Mark Grant that you saw on the video, uh, not saying anything. I mean, trying not to say a single thing, just letting the drum, once you get to the second, you know, there's one out, now the second out, now the crowd's all, they're on their feet, and the, the video is taking the shot of the, the you know, the close-ups of, of Lincecum, and the sets here, and looking into the dugout, and the fans cheering, and all the, let it play, this is, there is nothing more delicious than calling a, or not calling in this case, a, a no-hit, uh, no-run game. And, and uh, so going back to Detroit. So here I am in the ballpark where I grew up as a fan you know, of the Tigers. And here's Nolan Ryan with the most omnipotent performance I, I've ever seen by a pitcher. And uh, in, in I, in, I, I should go back and get all the history right on there. It seems to me like in the seventh inning, the bottom of the, the, the Angels uncharacteristically have a big lead, six, six nothing. And Billy Martin is the manager of the Tigers. And he starts playing games with trying to ice Ryan. So he's changing. No, it's the, I'm sorry. It's the top of the seventh inning. He starts changing pitchers. And when it comes one, then he takes him out and delayed. Now brings in. Another, and it's about a 30-minute uh, top half of the inning. And the Angels score a couple of more runs, whatever. So it's now six to nothing. I think Ryan at that time. Now, we're, we're talking about he got three more innings for the Tigers, nine more outs. And he already had something like. 16 strikeouts. I mean, he was going to blow the strikeout record you know, through the roof on that day. But then he only struck out a couple more. I think he finished with 18 or 19. Uh, but in the, in the ninth inning, and, and now in the Detroit ballpark, they're not standing and cheering. They're respectfully doing that, but it wouldn't be like a home uh, pitcher doing it. And you could hear Ryan grunting on every pitch. Wow. You know, just wow, that stuff. You know, and you know, it let many pitchers do, but it, you know, he was giving all in his soul, and 
and core of his body to, to finish that no-hitter. And, and, and so that's, of all the, of all the things I've done, no-hitter's the best, and that's the best of the no-hitters. And there was a wonderful, humorous moment. Again, it's why baseball is different from all the rest. There's time to have humor, and there's, uh, it's a long season. If you don't laugh at yourself and laugh at the moments and have some fun with it, you'll go crazy. So Norm Cass was the first baseman for the Tigers. He was a American League uh, batting champion in 60, but most of the Tiger lineup was long and tooth at this point. Uh, you know, K-Line and Stanley and Freehan and Horton. Northrup and Horton and Cash. It was a, a great team that, that was now old, and, and Ryan was just blowing that 100-mile-an-hour fastball. Now they measured it at 109, the fastest wow. ever, with using the new uh, uh, facilities. So uh, Cash comes up. I thought it was in the seventh inning. Some say it was in the ninth inning. Anyway, Ron Luciano was the umpire. Luciano was this big animated guy. He thought he was the game. He, he thought he was more important than the game. And I don't think any of the ball players liked him. He probably was a good guy. Uh, wound up committing suicide, I guess. And that maybe he didn't wow. like himself that much after all. So um, umpiring could do that to you. Yeah, umpiring could do that to you. You have few friends. So anyway, here's uh, Cash is at the plate. And first pitch, strike one. And now Luciano calls timeout, and he and Cash are in a, a conversation. We can hear it getting hotter and hotter, and, and Luciano's, but we're thinking he's throwing him out of the game. He's pointing at the dugout, and, and Cash is giving him one of these, and finally Cash meekly walks away, only to return, and, uh, and, and winds up uh, striking out. And so Ernie Harwell was the announcer for the Tigers, and afterwards we, we said, what was that all about with Luciano? What happened? Well, Cash had gone into the clubhouse before the at-bat and taken a leg off a table. And he was up there with a table leg <laughs> and not a bat. And he'd already had, he already had strike one. And Luciano notices it's not even a bat. And he's time go get a legal piece of equipment and chases him in the dugout. And Cash had the all-time line. What difference is it going to make? I'm going to strike out anyway. <laughs> Hard to believe, but it's a yeah, true story. Yeah. Oh, Mike. You were kind of old school, too. I think you've told me you don't want to mention a thing. And as an announcer, there's a thing in baseball. You don't want to mention that a no-hitter's taking place because you don't want to jinx it. And the New World says that's not being journalistic enough, that if it's a no-hitter, you should be sharing that with your audience. Come on. I mean... There are a hundred ways to let the audience know that there's a no-hitter without saying the words no-hitter. I mean, that's all. I'm not going to say no-hitter. I can say, look at all the zeros up there. Oh, in the run column, hit column. Uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot yeah. of ways. You know, uh, there hadn't been a base runner for you know, the opposing team. Whatever. You can, you can let people know that there's something. Or just even saying, hey, you're, you're turning into something special tonight. Just right, look at right. that scoreboard. Yeah. But I don't, I've never said no hitter. And you know, as soon as you do, it's, it's going to be broken and you're getting, you know. Yeah. It's ridiculous, but you do feel. Uh, it's one of baseball's traditions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don, did you ever get a hit? What was it like facing Nolan Ryan? Like, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever get a hit? Or did you? Well, his stroke was. I understand. I understand. But did you know that 100 miles an hour? I mean, was it that much different than every other pitcher you would face? Oh, yeah. But he threw 
Uh, Sam McDowell threw hard. Yeah. Nolan Ryan threw hard. I mean, there are a lot of guys that threw Gibson threw. I mean, there are a lot of guys that threw over 100 miles an hour, in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, Didn't he get the first pitch in the World Series up? Bottom of the first inning, and I, this I just love that story. Bottom of the first, yeah, second pitch of the game. Tom Seaver from USC is pitching. Don is hitting, and Rod Dato had flown out in Baltimore and was watching the game. You weren't teammates though, in at SC. Oh no, no. They yeah. They win. They win the game, and then the and then the Miracle Mets go and take care of that. But they made three consecutive World Series. That guy played in. Yeah, well, that that was a great team. I mean, this yeah. the Red Machine is one. Yeah, four. That's right. Yeah, twenty four on on one staff, four twenty game winners. Yeah. What, did did your how much of your career was your dad able to enjoy? Well, my dad was a, a tough Finlander who uh, didn't praise uh, his children um, uh, and didn't say I love you. Um, yeah, that was just uh, the way he was raised, and he was a depression father. And there were uh, most of those men were afraid their sons might be weak, and uh, and who knows there could be another depression someday. And are you going to be strong enough to handle handle that? And too much praise will make you soft. And uh, at, at one of the most meaningful, and it, it it's impacted my entire life. And I don't want you to leave thinking my dad was a bad guy. He, I'm I'm he's been uh, he passed 34 years ago, and I'm still trying to please him. Uh, I think about in my, is my behavior, is what am I doing now? Would that please my dad? Would he be happy with that? And he finally did say, I love you. And, he, and, and when he died, he, I was single for eight years. My dad came from the farm, and we were an odd couple for, uh, up in the hills in Hollywood. And he would, because he was a farmer, he was my plumber and my electrician. He was my gardener. He was all those things. I'd cook and get him golf money. And, 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 uh, and, uh, yeah, there was a, about, Three, four years into that, I'd leave to go do a game, and my dad would be seeing me off, and, and I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to tell him I love him today. I'm gonna, and then the phone would ring or something would happen. Finally, one day, I, I, I'd leave, and I just grabbed him, and I said, Dad, I love you. And I could just feel intense and just kind of push. And, and yeah. then, but then I, I, I repeated that, and within a year, he'd say, I love you too, son. And, wow. uh, and when he died... Uh, he had very little effects. He never made more than $8,000 in a year. He had, uh, unbeknownst to me, anytime I did a game, he had a little tape recorder, and he'd put the microphone next to the speaker on the television set and tape my, my game. And he had, there were like three shoe boxes full of these uh, audio tapes, oh. Minnesota versus the Rams, 1971, Angels versus, yeah, and yeah, it was after he died I realized how much he, he really... God, what a great story. God, what a, what a great story. Um, I always wonder this with somebody that has so much of your life plays out in the public eye. You did 10 Super Bowls, 9 Rose Bowls, the Olympics. How did you manage emotions and nerves? What were you like the night before? If you're going to, the Super Bowl, you know, is going to be the, maybe the most, well, it's the most watched program in the history of broadcasting in this country. Um, so how did, you, how did you handle that, and what was your typical routine of, say, the night before? First of all, I was never more nervous in front of an audience, television or not, than when I taught it my, my first years of teaching. I had diarrhea every time. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean, I would, 
That's why I didn't have more students, by the way. I just want you. Well, I had to teach the course that no one wants. I love the course, but you know, students don't want to take that basic freshman class. I don't know if they're required, but it was a required class then. So you had 50 freshmen taking the health science uh, 101, whatever it was. And, and you knew that, that there were students who were uh, sons and daughters of you know, medical people or psychiatrists, or whatever. They knew more about the subject than I did. I'm just trying to stay one day ahead of my students. Uh -huh. and, I, and I've never been more nervous uh, uh, in broadcasting my entire life, the Super Bowls included, than just getting ready for that to, to do well in front of a class of students. Uh, but the Super Bowl, you know, what, the, it's just like the players. They all say the same thing. You can't wait for the game to start. Because once the game starts, it's another game. I've called hundreds of games. It's mm -hmm. a Super Bowl game. Yes, it's important. But you get lost in the game and you call it and the game comes to you and you hope to react properly to the game. Uh, but, you know, the, the key was finally uh, to understand that in a Super Bowl, there's so many so much media there that even the announcers are kind of important, and people want to do interviews with yes. you. And uh, and finally, you have to turn off the, your telephone and not allow anyone to call up there because you wind up getting distracted. I mean, the distractions are the key. The same was in baseball. I tried to be a nice person, and you're getting ready for a game, and somebody will come into the booth, and the next thing you know, we're we're chatting about how's your family, what's going on here, and all the rest. And then all of a sudden, ten minutes now, and you're on the air, and you're you're not sharp. Right. And you're still right. in the conversation that you had back here. Yeah. So I finally, and, and Skelly was really good at that. He actually had a bodyguard, and especially late here when they knew it was his last year, they literally would lock the door of the booth with about an hour to go, so no one would come in there because it was a steady stream of people. Uh, so, so, so you could you could hit a point the night before stop. I'm I'm ready. Have a good night's sleep. Not pretty good. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I wouldn't stay up late. I always try to get up early and uh, go to the gym and at least break a sweat, to ride a bike for a half hour, whatever. And I would use that time to memorize uh, my names and numbers. My wife says, "You know, you had to memorize a hundred names and numbers. You know, two teams, fifty players every weekend, and you don't know the names of our our." our and neighbors, I mean, come on. What, how, how can you, I said, I got an idea. Let's give them bibs. Tarnowski's our number seven. Yeah. So, Jeff's coming over. He's number eight. And they'll remember. You, know. um, you had such great rapport with your, your color announcers that worked alongside of you. Um, Al McGuire, obviously, Billy Packer, and Don Drysdale, Merlin Olson, John McEnroe. Vin Scully worked most of his career solo. By himself in the booth. Amazing. What was your thought, and was it a challenge to work alongside someone? What, what, what's your thought about working with someone versus going solo? Oh, ab absolutely. I want company. Uh, the, uh, when I took the Angel job in 69, and here the Dodgers are the big team, and Scully's the great announcer, and the Angels were a struggling team, and they had a couple of good years, but not many winning seasons. And so we're going to be compared. Here's Enberg now working. It was with Don Wells the first two years, and then Don Drysdale uh, started in the third year. Uh, it was I, I came up with this guy. I went to the engineer, and I said, is it possible to, to hook up our mics with a toggle switch on them so that at any time, uh, you know, you have a, a crowd mic hanging out of the booth, so you always have the crowd noise rumbling in the, in the background. So that if I'm, I'm, I can turn off my mic, you can still have crowd noise, and I could actually talk to my color partner. And he could talk to me. And then whenever he wanted to say something, he could go. So there was never my inning, your inning, that if we, if we could get in conversation with Drysdale, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah. I mean, he had yeah. to pick his brain. And that worked in all sports. I, I always feel that I'm, that, I, 
I'm being paid very well to sit in the best seats in the stadium. It's a 50-yard line, center court, behind home plate. They're the best seats there are. I'm usually with one of the great players in the history of the game. Mm -hmm. and, and if I were a fan going to the game and sitting not behind a microphone but watching the game, to be able to sit next to Merlin Olsen in a Rams game and talk to him or sit next to Drysdale and talk about how the game's going in baseball. And so I've always felt that that was, that was my role along with you know, the score and going to commercial and all the obvious things is to pick the brain of, of my, my color man. I wanted him to come in. And in baseball, there's so much time to be able to do that, where you can have conversations and tell stories. And, uh, you know, did you, why, why did you pitch high and inside? Or did you really? No, you'd say, I never hit one guy. I said, well, look at Don here in the register. It says you hit 189 guys. He said, they hit themselves. They can get out of the way, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Gibson was even tougher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't know where I was going to go with that. But the, uh, the partnership, uh, it, it, well, I did boxing from the Olympic for three years, and um, and they used the matchmaker. Mickey Davis was my color man. And I, the, the last thing I would want to do is try to do it alone. But sure. with the matchmaker, I could ask him, why did you put these two guys together? What did you see in this guy? You saw him as a puncher, or you see this guy as a boxer, and da, da, da. Um, but But Scully has so, is so rich in his storytelling and his, the history of the game. Yeah, you know, think about it, 67 straight years 67. he called it. That's incredible. Yeah, I, in a way, uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit jealous, not a lot, a bit jealous of, of Scully and Bud Collins, who wrote the encyclopedia, he was the encyclopedia of tennis and wrote the encyclopedia of tennis, that that's, that was their sport. And so they could concentrate fully, uh, uh, Collins on, on boxing and Scully on baseball, not that he doesn't have a hundred other interests. Uh, and, and the others say, but you have the advantage of doing all the, all the sports, getting to do so many different, you don't get bored by anyone. You, get to tackle a, a lot of different uh, uh, sports and different uh, athletes and different stories. And so that, that was my blessing. But in some ways, um, it, it would have been nice to, you know, this is the sport. That's, you devote all your attention to it. And uh, you know, I'm very thankful that didn't happen, Dick, no, because no, we've <laughs> enjoyed you across so many sports and so many amazing moments. <laughs> Two in basketball, college basketball, that you'll be forever linked to. The first game, big game in the Astrodome in 68, UCLA and Houston. Uh, By the way, I just got, came back from there, uh, Houston, two weeks ago. Uh, in January, I think it was January 24th, 28th, something. Yeah, it's going to be the 50th anniversary. Some of you are old enough to remember UCLA, Houston, and the Astrodome. Uh, it was... Uh, in, that's right, 50, 50 years. years. So we, yeah. uh, it, it's interesting. No one from UCLA came to Houston, but uh, Don Chaney and... Uh, Elvin Hayes were there. Of course, they live in the area in Houston. Uh, Jim Nance is the uh, is the host, and I went back uh, as the broadcaster. And, and think think about how life treats you well. Here I am in my second. I've I've left San Fernando Valley State in '65. Gene Autry hires me to do the sports on the news on Channel Five and boxing from the Olympic. Uh, Angels pre and post game show. Uh, Bob Kelly, the Rams announcer, dies. I get to do the Rams on on radio. Uh, and now they say, you know, we ought to televise UCLA. You know, we got this guy from New York, Lou Alcindor, uh, Kareem, coming in, and uh, he's eligible this year. We, we decided we're going to televise the games. We'll televise the away games live and the home games tape delay at 11 o'clock. And that's when I said, are you kidding me? No one's going to stay up till 11 o'clock to watch a game that's already been played. Well, right. couldn't have it beat Johnny Carson. I mean, it became a cult. The players would go home and watch the right. game after. Bill Walton used to say, we had a lottery. 
David said, we really play well tonight. Enberg, how many oh my's? I think he went nine. I'm going for nine oh my's. On, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah. We're, you touched a lot. You touched so many uh, yeah, lives with the, with the UCLA. I wonder how... Oh, oh, okay. The UCLA-Houston game. Yeah. Just a, okay, yeah. so the story is a good story. So the second year on the UCLA, you know, they go undefeated the first year and, and, and 30 you know, and win the national championship. And they beat Houston in the semifinals the year before. Now they... Uh, uh, Guy Lewis is the coach at, uh, at Houston. He wants the game. It's going to be a big deal for, for them. John Wooden did not want the game. Did not. He was against it. He thought it was going to be a, a circus, a, a, a carnival. Uh, but J.D. Morgan, who was the athletic director at UCLA, was a businessman. Uh -huh. uh, Don Canham at Michigan followed J.D. Morgan. They're the first two athletic directors that saw the big money in, in college athletics. They saw it. So... Eddie Einhorn, who is uh, this little character from Pennsylvania, uh, a law, law degree, and he, had, he saw the value of college basketball on television long before the networks. A lot of people will take credit for it. They were way behind this Eddie Einhorn. He started little syndicated uh, 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 conference games of the week. He had the Ivy League, he had Southeast Conference, and, uh, and some others. And he saw this UCLA-Houston game as being his big score. This is going to be the biggest national thing he'd ever done. And indeed, it, it drew the largest crowd ever to see a basketball game, over 52,000. It was the first time ever that a basketball game was played in a big arena Football like that. Stadium. Now they're all played, sadly. They're all the big games are played that way. That was the first time. In fact, they didn't even know where to put the court. So what they do? They put the court right in the middle of the Astrodome. No one had a good seat. It was like a postage stamp out there. People wondering, oh, the guy's running around out there. Let's, instead of where today, they move it to one end and curtain the other. Uh, better off watching it on television. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. are better off. And so that's what people, they were, even up in the box seats, they were watching television instead of, instead of the game. But the Enbridge story out of all of this is, so Einhorn is working out the final details for the telecast and getting UCLA signature. Everything's done. And uh, he said, shakes hands, so it's a deal. And uh, J.D. Martin, one other thing. He said, we want you to use our announcer. And he says, who is he? <laughs> he didn't know me from a broken rim. And uh, he says, Dick Enberg. He said, is he any good? He said, yeah, we think he's pretty good. He, he's not going to blow the deal now. He's already sh had uh, shaking hands on the, on the contract for this big deal. So that's how Dick Enberg called what was the most significant yeah. historical event I ever had a chance to call. It was the very first time I was on national TV. Is it was the, probably, you know, look back, historically, the most important game I ever had uh, the privilege Again, to just call. think about you guys, you know, the ga these games were always in arenas. The sports arena had, had imagine this, the sports arena there had two Final Fours. <laughs> had the Final Four that year, in fact. 68, yeah, yeah. and they had, one in, they had a Final Four in 72. Um, yes, actually, that UCLA-Houston game ball. was uh, on the uh, sports arena floor, and then they came back and played the uh, finals, and UCLA really clocked the... Houston in the rematch. Yeah. Cinder had been poked in the eye. And, and all the right things had to happen. UCLA should, couldn't win. If they'd won by 20 points, it had been another game. But Houston won, and that made it big. And the other first was, and again, you young kids, think about this. You can watch, I, I looked right. at the paper on the weekend, like 30, I counted 34 basketball games were on. And that, in those days, there was nothing on in prime time. And usually only, it was just local teams telecasts. It was the first time ever, pro or college, 
that a basketball game was played in prime time in the regular season. First time ever. Wow. And, and here, I'm lucky enough that I just wander into this uh, opportunity. And then, and then 11 years later, you're in Salt Lake City, where uh, Indiana State led by Larry Bird playing Michigan State led by Magic Johnson. And Greg Kelser. Right. Him. Did you have any idea when you were watching it that these guys, the, the impact that they were likely to have in the game eh, at the next not, level? Not really at the time. I, I will say historically people have, uh, in sports especially, and, and politics, we rewrite history. Uh, and, and many because you know, there are two ways that you measure the ratings of a telecast. One is just how many people saw it. And the other, maybe more le legitimate uh, measure is, of the television sets that are on at the time, right. how many are watching that event? And the uh, Indiana State-Michigan State game has, still has the record for the most sets in use watching a college basketball game. And, so the, and because of what Magic and Bird did for the NBA, everyone wants to call that the greatest game, most important game in, in college basketball history. No, 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 I did them both. 1968, 11 years earlier, when there was no interest, people, you know, no. never seen a pri in prime time before. That, that was the game, and because it was 71-69 uh, and UCLA lost, all the right things had to, had to fall. That was the, the launching pad. That was basketball's Cape Canaveral. That got the rocket ship in the outer space. Then the Indiana State, Michigan State, that was the booster that kept sure. taking it, and now it goes on and on and on. Uh, and, but those are separated by 11 years. But at the time, you know, they, they actually wasn't a very good game. I mean, Michigan right. State was obvious. They figured out how to defend Bird, and Bird got his points. But, you know. Playing at altitude, and I, I think yeah. it just didn't, wasn't as sharp game as I remember. Well, and who, who, who was the big center for They had Kelser was an All-American. Magic was an All-American. Uh, the, the big guy, he played in the pros, too. They had three le legit All-Americas on the Michigan State team. In some ways, it was, you know. Uh, the Big Ten and all these All-Americas against uh, uh, Larry Bird and four chemistry majors, you know, and, it, uh, and it, it's... Uh, because, uh, because Gary Hurley, who's from New Jersey, but is a, is a disciple of North Carolina basketball, Dean Smith, um, who I was mm -hmm. honored to have met, had a little bit of interaction with, they came out and played in my basketball. What's your... Do you have a, a favorite Dean Smith story? Yeah, I, the, memory yeah. of him? Yeah, well, he um, he was distant uh, to the media, you know, at least to the you know, the national media. Most most coaches are; they don't want to be bothered by us, and I don't blame blame them. You know, some are really, you know, like Jim Valvano. You couldn't get rid of him. I mean, he was just he was just said, you know, always telling you jokes and come on. We almost missed a game once. We were up in his office laughing, and an uh, uh, intern came running in there. We're on in five minutes. We're on in five minutes. Valvano was telling stories. We didn't uh, want to leave. Um, not, nothing that was dramatic. Uh, I sure admire his, his stance the, the, on civil yeah. rights down, yeah, down yeah, there to yeah. put well, himself out there in North Carolina. Good coaches did. The good coaches did do that. They were right. I, uh, today's coaches, uh, uh, I just think that uh, Coach K at, at Duke is, uh, I, I admire him greatly. Um, I, I think he's taken all the, I mean, his, he, he played under Bobby Knight, uh, coached under him. Uh, Knight probably, if you were taking a test on basketball, I, I don't think many coaches would want to take a test against Knight. He really knows the game inside out. But uh, K, uh, Coach K did very bright in that regard, but also um, didn't quite have the uh, the high flame fire uh, that uh, that would erupt in, in Coach Knight. Uh, I, I think every coach 
should be and says, we're not just coaches, we're teachers, we're teacher coaches. Uh, they all say that. I think uh, Coach K lives up to that. Um, he, Dean Smith, well Dean Smith as well. Yeah. And I, 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 I actually can tweet too now. Then that's something. Can you believe that? So yeah. now and then I, I do that. The other day uh, I read that Coach K, they, it, uh, clever, they call it, he's now a 1K coach, 1,000 1, wins. And so I tweeted uh, out on that and I said, with a lot of people who are praising that now, I did a game and uh, it was not. Uh, uh, Duke, it was North Carolina. So Al and, and Billy and I are flying into Raleigh Durham and we're in the car listening to the sports talk radio. And it's his second year, Coach K. And they, they're calling in one after another. Get rid of that bum. Hey, West Coast guy, yeah, he could coach up at Army. He, he can't do anything here. What are we doing? Why don't we even hire a guy like They're just ripping him inside out. I just like to go back and have those people just a thousand wins. Uh, he did okay, didn't he? By the way, when Dick and Al McGuire and Billy Packer would go do a college basketball game, it was, it was like college game day is today. That's it. Well, it was the only game, the only national game of the they week. They showed up. And it was like these three guys that was exactly like you see every week. I mean, minus to having the brilliant idea of ESPN to involve the color of the crowds every week because yeah. it brings the sport into your, you know, the yeah. unique college towns. But you guys, it was a, it was a road show. Yeah. Something else. Well, that's because Al, Mc, Al McGuire was the star and he was the coach at Marquette and Billy was the brains of it all. He knew everything about basketball. He could tell you the best player in Anchorage, Alaska, who was in the eighth grade and, you know, what's going what's gonna to happen here? Al didn't know anything about the rules. or And I was just kind of the, the moderator to kind of keep the, them from not arguing uh, too much. And, uh, but, but Al's street genius, we found out uh, after he died, when I wrote this play about him, one man play about him, that he had ADD before we knew what it was. And, and you can imagine, he, he used to say, I read and write at a seventh grade level. And we'd say, oh, come on, coach. I mean, come on, don't put us on, because he would do that too. Uh, and uh, and he and he really only could read and write at a seventh grade level, and and can you imagine with that handicap and and not having any medicine or any care for it, how he was able to weave his way through the barbed wire of life and not let anybody know. Right. And 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 there, coach, there's one instance we're doing a game. Assistant coach comes up and says, uh, out of kindness, "Hey Al, here's our scouting report on the team we're playing tomorrow." You might be able to pick up a couple of you know, good notes out of it. Al takes it, rolls it up, hits him with it. It says, I don't I know that stuff. I don't. And we walked away. I said, Coach, that was kind of rude. I mean, he was trying to help you. Oh, I don't know. He couldn't read it. He couldn't read it. And so his whole library, think about that. His whole library was here. He, he, had, to, he had to remember things uh, because he couldn't read and go back and research it or do anything else. Tell, tell me what they, he said, what Al used to say about always going, going left or going oh, yeah. right. I just think that's good for people to just think about. And I do, in my talks, to, especially to college-age students, and I try to weave that in with, it concerns me that with all the high technology today and the texting and the phones and all that, too many of you young people are walking with your heads down, walking right by life, <clears throat> when maybe something more important is happening out there, and maybe you take a little time off and and put those away and maybe it will, maybe an hour and take a right hand turn. And this is what Al meant by a right hand turn. <clears throat> Excuse me. He uh, lived outside Milwaukee uh, in the suburbs. And on his way to work in downtown Milwaukee, he would come to a dead stop. He turned left. He went into downtown Milwaukee, Marquette, concrete, filet mignon, patches on the sleeves, 
uh, and the big city life. But if he went right and went out into the Wisconsin countryside, it'd be alfalfa and a ham sandwich and sawdust and a guy with two teeth missing. And, and, and he said he, he owed it to himself at least once a month when he got to that corner to take a right-hand turn and not always do the same thing. As we all do, we have a routine, we do the same thing. And he said, I didn't even call in. And he said, my coaches would handle the practice. I mean, that would ruin the spirit to call in. I might not make the call until I got right at the stop. I'm going right today. Take a right-hand turn and let the unexpected uh, come to you. Life can be really beautiful. It doesn't always have to be planned. And yeah, we can apply that in our own lives. You know, some you have a, a free day on a Saturday and you say, why don't we just get in the car with the kids and drive out? I've never been to Alpine. Let's go out that way. And whatever we do, we stop and we'll buy some apple pie and da-da-da. And and he took took me on one of those. He picked me up at the hotel in Milwaukee. It's, and his, this Plymouth, uh, old Plymouth, uh, his wife said, you know, you get pomaine poisoning just riding in it. He'd eat half, half, of, half, half a sandwich and throw the rest in the back. <laughs> and he used to say, the best chili is where the girls, uh, the waitresses have dirty ankles. I mean, he had, that was his fault. Because, you know, they're really digging in there and getting the real stuff. Right, right. So, um, anyway, so, so, he picks, so he picks me up. So he picks me up. And at 9 o'clock in the morning, he said, I got a ball game. We're playing the Brewers. I got to be back by 4.35. And, and I said, my first question, dumb me, is what are we going to do today? Said, we're not going to do nothing. That's the whole idea. We're taking a right-hand turn. We're doing nothing. So I get in, and we head out to the countryside. And there's a sign, uh, pick your own berries, 40 cents a basket. I said, yeah, I grew up on a farm. We used to have berries. And yeah, we pulled over, picked, this, uh, picked some uh, strawberries and pick those and we move move on and we're just enjoying the countryside we go through this little town and uh, there's an antique shop I like I've collected uh, some copper things and, and I saw a copper kettle in the window I said hey let, let's you know do we stop we went in there we browsed for about a half an hour didn't buy anything but it was fun we got in the now it's getting time for lunch I said well where are we going to eat Alice said where do you want to eat you know pick a place what what the only thing is mom or pop have to be in the in the kitchen or you, the food's no good. Yeah. And not, if linen napkins, you know, you have to pay to launder those. You have to got to be paper napkins and mom or pop, and then you get a good meal every time. That was, that was his formula. Yeah. Pretty good formula, actually. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we found a place, sure enough, the, the uh, man comes out, it's the owner, and it's paper napkins, and we had a wonderful lunch. And the day went on, and, and on the way back into Milwaukee, there's a park, he pulls over in the park, and we got out. I like to walk a lot. We got in the park, and we walked about a half hour around this park, he says, you know, the parks are ours. We pay for the parks. They're all for us, and yet we don't use them. I mean, it's a beautiful place to take a walk. Why don't people do that more? Anyway, by the time you got me back to do the ball game, and I got on, I said, wow, that was a great day. We had no plans, and it all came to us. It's all out there, and it all came to us. And so when I talk, and I'm sorry if I'm preaching to you, and I have kids, so I, I know how, how you guys react to that, but... Uh, <clears throat> So my thought is, on a Saturday, see, you can't take a right-hand turn and not go to class middle of the week. See, I'm not suggesting you, you know, it's okay, uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that. But what if on a Saturday or a Sunday, you took one hour and you put all of, all, all of the electronics away, all the modern means, and you just uh, walk the campus? Um, and, 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 and maybe you'd see a, a sunset that's really beautiful. And maybe uh, you'd it, it's a, it's a, there's wonderful places on the campus. Maybe places you've never been. And, and, and I, I, I usually end this by saying, you guys, uh, uh, 
Uh, what is the color of your girlfriend's eyes? Get your head up, get your chin up. You know, they might be the most beautiful eyes on campus. Take, take time to enjoy what's out there and not always charging through life with your, with your head down. Sorry to preach to you, but it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. My commercial. It's probably a good time. I was thinking of the things you sent me. I just, I just asked Dick some thoughts about uh, that he would pass along some you know, advice for the future, he calls it. Uh, so we yeah, pretty simple stuff. Uh, I did this. I was at Kentucky about a month ago, and they asked me to. Um, you can't write enough, and most of you are here because you do write and love to write, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm delivering my end of this as a play-by-play announcer that likes to write uh, now and then. But uh, I do believe uh, sincerely that the best broadcasters, telecasters, uh, play-by-play announcers all write well. Ben Scully writes well. Al Michaels writes well. Keith Jackson writes well. Uh, when, when, when you're ad-libbing as a uh, broadcaster in a play-by-play situation, or maybe you're a, a field reporter, whatever it may be, you, you should be thinking as a writer thinks. What is the storyline here? What's the beginning and the end? What, do you, what, what, what should we expect? It's kind of like a, a football game I always thought of as being um, a four-act piece of theater. The first act is when we've got to develop the characters. We've got to let people know who are, who are the possible stars. What, why are they? Who, why should you care about them? What, what is their goal in this game? And then the, then the play be in the second act begins. You know, that's where the, the crime occurs or whatever. There's the two block punts and a fumble or however that, maybe that changes the whole scope of what we thought was going to happen when we set it up in the first. And then the third, how are they going to counter that? And finally you get to the fourth and final act and you tie it all together so that someone who's been with you for this entire piece of drama are able to appreciate the full scope of the players, and, uh, the actors in the play, and how important they were, the events within the play that they created or didn't create, uh, and how it all materialized into a, fin- uh, a final chapter uh, of this play that uh, allows us to go home and maybe appreciate, maybe we didn't like the final score, but we can appreciate uh, the theater of the event, and uh, and and writers think that way, and uh, uh, I think the best broadcasters uh, think that way as well. So to listen, uh, you know, it's the old line that uh, it's amazing how much we learn when we're not talking. Um, that it, to to be able to listen um, um, to even the silence, um, you know, silence is is golden. And as I said earlier, we all talk too much. Uh, and I, I tried this out in a speech. It was, uh, I was invited to go to a campus and speak. And my, uh, the title of the speech, I tried to come up with something different, was The Power of the Pause. The Power of the Pause. And so I, I had somebody do a nice, beautiful introduction and all that. And uh, Dr. Enberg's going to talk about the power of the pause. And I came up, a nice little pause, and I looked, and I looked. Look, and I kept, kept looking. Now they're starting to think I forgot my speech, right? <laughs> yeah, right? And they start mumbling and talking, and they're getting nervous in their seats. And, and, and finally, when I had them where I wanted them, I said, now that was the power of the pause. That, that, you know, we have a friend who's a, a recovered stutterer. And when he, when he gets excited, he says, oh, <laughs> I, I can't believe it. That we had such, we played golf and, 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 and he's I mean, just drawing us in. I mean, his stutter probably becomes a, yeah, powerful because we can't wait to hear what happened to him. He's so excited. Um, 
even in uh, in writing, it's, uh, there's an ellipsis, right? I use the three dots all the time, I, I, because that's kind of how I talk. And I'll use the in music. We have the uh, arrest uh, fermata. Uh, that's uh, so silence can be beautifully powerful, and uh, and to use it now and then. And you, and you see some of the great uh, actresses and actors, uh, theater and, and movies, and how, how they deliver lines and and sell the line with a Pause. Yeah. So use it to your advantage. Um, prepare. I mean, that's an obvious. I mean, you 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 you, you sow what you reap, and uh, if you don't prepare, uh, it's just not going to be given to you. Yeah. They, just because you're going to get sunshine and rain at the right time, and maybe get a lucky as we all do, you feel a lot of your own luck. But uh, and, you know, and, and I've always found preparation is fun. Yeah. Uh, you do. I mean, it's, it's it's fun to find a little nugget here and there, or something that maybe no one else has, has has had in their broadcast or telecast, and share that with your audience. And sometimes that's uh, using a, a personal note. I, as a teacher, I use a lot of my personal experiences in 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 education. Which is what makes it fun to I think to learn. And some of it is uh, deprecating. You know, some of the dumb things you do, and it kind of brings. Uh, the world in with you that, that we all have our flaws and our warts and it's it's okay it's it, not okay it's great to admit that i mean as, as al mcguire used to say two best things in coaching is winning and losing losing is good because it helps you to preach the win the winning you know and if you don't uh, appreciate the losing how can you really enjoy the winning i mean so you got to lose too that's good also i mean he was crazy but he was uh, a, a street genius um the, the, uh, and using humor, uh, gosh, we're so serious now, and it's hard to even, you know, you, you, it's so delicate now, you've got to be politically correct. And, um, it, it's, it, it, I, I just think that uh, the more you can incorporate as a writer or as a broadcaster something that's, that has joy in it, has fun in it, that will make people smile, maybe even laugh, uh, sells the whole program. Uh, that uh, it, 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 it can be, life can be, too serious, and, and we should hope to step aside. Sometimes the way to I always start my speeches by making fun of myself. You know, I, I I'll tell stories like, uh, "Thank you for that kind introduction." Was it a eulogy? Uh, uh, it, it, it's nice to know who I am because in public, a lot of people kind of know who I am, and it's a, it's a nice game that I play. I'll be in the airport, and somebody will be staring at me, and they'll finally come over, and and they'll say, "And it just happened last week." They'll say, "Uh, I." I are you somebody famous? <laughs> and I'll say, uh, aren't you? <laughs> uh, and they'll say, uh, they'll say, well, uh, what's your name? And I'll say, uh, I'm Dick Enberg. And they'll say, no, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> so who do you want me to be? Yeah, I, mean, I, could, right. I can be almost uh, anyway. I'll tell you a quick, quick story yeah, of that yeah. regard. So we're doing a Notre Dame game, and I'm working with Bob Trumpy, the tight end for the Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, at, at Notre Dame, uh, when you go to the stadium, they have, uh, at least where our, our press parking was, uh, there are Indiana State troopers, you know, all really, I mean, it looked like the official deal, uh, that guard the gates. And so we're ready to do the football game. Trumpy and I get in one car, and the director and producer get in the other car. We don't know it, but the producer and director have the only parking pass. We don't have a parking pass. And we have a young Notre Dame student driving us. And we, he says, I don't have a parking pass. Well, well, then you better stay right on the bumper of that guy up there. We got to go in with him. He's got the parking pass. Don't let him get away. Come on, stay right on him. But I don't care how fast he's going. We got to get in there. We got a game to call. 
And this poor kid, he's just so nervous. He wants to do the right thing. And he's, now we get to the checkpoint. And here's the Indiana trooper. And our producer director show him the parking pass go through, and this kid goes right in behind him. <laughs> and the, and the uh, trooper's going, no, whoa, 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 whoa. And the next thing you know, we go 100 yards up, there's a second checkpoint and another trooper right there. And here comes the first guy at a full gallop after us. And he comes up to us and out of breath, opens the door, pulls the kid out, chastising him, really letting him have it. And I'm just in the back seat looking out and seeing, we're going to go to jail here. So Trumpy, Trumpy uh, gets out and he goes over and they're about 25 yards over there and they're talking and talking and the trooper looks in and, and get, kind of gives an indication it's going to be okay. Trumpy gets back in the car. Big Bob, way to go. Save the day. What, what happened anyway? He said, well, the trooper finally looked in the car and said, why didn't you tell me Keith Jackson was here? <laughs> so, sometimes, so sometimes that works out. Anyone you want me to be. I just, yeah, that's awesome. So use humor, kindness. That's uh, what goes around, comes around. That was a Don Drysdale, you say that all, a baseball expression. Goes around, comes around. Uh, you know, you, but the people you meet going up, you're going to meet going down. All of those. Uh, and uh, all true. Uh, and, and it's so easy for us to be too busy and not be kind. And, and I'm not saying you, uh, people are nasty. Just the, the reverse of that. I mean, to be kind. Uh, Dwayne Lucas is one of the most successful horse trainers in, in thoroughbred racing. And all of his stables are renowned for being the cleanest. I mean, they've got flower boxes in the stalls and uh, stable and it just uh, everything meticulous for the thoroughbred horse. And he's got a list on the wall of 12 tenets of how to deal with the thoroughbred uh, racehorse. And number six or seven on the list is the power of kindness. Now he's talking about a, not the smartest animal God has ever created, and a beautiful animal, mind you, but not the smartest. The power of kindness, being kind to the animal, to that equine athlete. And if it works for them, it surely should work for us. And, and the, the, the kindness is, it's amazing how quickly it's returned. It's empowering. It gives you power. And it comes back. There's just a karma about it. You do something nice and wow, and within 24 hours, somebody's doing something nice for me. Why did that happen? So use it as a, a, a strength. Uh, I, I didn't include on there lastly because my son is trying to become a broadcaster and going through a tough time and trying to get a full-time job, but he's, he's getting better and better and better. I'm coaching him up uh, to be aggressive. You've got to be aggressive, all of you. Uh, you, you can't, no, don't accept no. <laughs> You got to keep badgering people. To, if you think you've got a chance, uh, make yourself interesting in a different way. I, I was thinking back when I was at, at Valley State, um, and I, uh, uh, I I had done the, the Indiana games, and I thought I was pretty good, and maybe somebody would hire me. Yeah, in those days with uh, no internet, of Western Union, I'd send a Western Union. Just wanted to remind you, my body temperature is ninety-eight point six, pulse is seventy-two, feeling really good. I'm here at, uh, here's my phone number. Uh, so to uh, pursue, you can't uh, make that interview, go to that interview and, and think it went well and leave waiting for them to call you. I mean, you've got to go back and badger them. They got a lot of other, other things on their mind. And that list of uh, candidates may uh, be a pile that high. You've got to separate, separate yourself from the others in that pile. And, and that takes, I don't know if uh, you, resume. I mean, how to do a resume. Yep. I mean, that first thing that somebody reads that resume has got to knock you out. My son wrote a resume. 
and, and down at the very bottom, he has spent a year in China speak fluent Mandarin. I said, Ted, yeah, that's got to be the first thing up there. I mean, you're, you separate yourself from the crowd with that. And then you can tell where you went to high school and uh, your interests and hobbies. So be, be aggressive. Um, uh, you know, Mark Twain had a, a, a nice expression, don't, don't be afraid to go out on a limb. That's where the ripe fruit is. <laughs> so thank you for uh, just about saying goodbye. Oh, One, gee, I'm getting hungry here. I know. Oh. We're going to get out of time. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to give it away. There's just so much stuff. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. It really was difficult to uh, say goodbye to Dick Enberg that night. And um, little did we know that it was the last time that I think any of us that were in the room that night um, saw Dick because it was just six weeks later that um, he died of a heart attack at his home in La Jolla. Um, But I'm so grateful that we had that evening um, and that it could be shared with uh, a lot of folks that night, and uh, and I'm hoping even more through this podcast. Um, I think Dick's career um, touched so many people, uh, and it will continue to impact people for generations to come, not just those that study his um, sports broadcasting work, um, but also just for people that... Uh, that knew him and heeded his words because he always carried himself in such a way and his emphasis on kindness and being a good person uh, will be felt forever. Um, So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful also for the great work of my producer, Rohan Hardas, for um, transforming the, uh, the video version that we Um, that we had from class that night and turning it into the podcast that you just listened to. Uh, So if I could sign off, uh, uh, it would have to be just one way, and that is to say the two words I'll probably remember most from Dick Genberg, uh, oh my. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time uh, in the front row.